Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast, can at times contain adult language and themes. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Digital Dissection Podcast, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties, creators, and topics. We are your humble hosts, Joe and Mark, two pop culture nerds dedicated to telling entertainment history before it's forgotten too soon. Join us on Facebook, Twitter, and our blog for more information on the show. We also love to hear from you. Write us at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's get to dissecting. So, Mark, once upon a time, we used to have like this TV block or a set of TV channels and they were kind of geared towards educational purposes. And they found ways of doing this in actually entertaining ways. And these would be things like TLC, the Learning Channel, or A&E, Arts and Entertainment. Uh, and, of course, the juggernaut that kind of headed them all, I think was the owner of them, was the Discovery Channel. This is now a bygone era as A&E. I, I actually can't even tell you what's on A&E anymore. I think it's... I think it's just shows about terrible restaurants out on the West Coast and they're, they're just dramatic staff. And I think TLC is all about, um, I think, weight loss. I think it's weight loss now. I think that's the, the big one going on is just, just large people needing to lose a lot of weight. Um, it, it used <laughs> to be about like little people in big worlds. Yes. And, and mm -hmm. now it's about big people same world yes which, which you know i don't mm -hmm. i don't want to cast judgment because no no yeah there, there was that's, a time when I, I i was in that glass house as a mm -hmm. large person you know it took some time yeah and again not to not to disparage the people who are on these shows and are the subject of them it's just that these networks seem to have found honestly this weird, like they, they're like straddling a line between like expletive uh, or exploitive, not expletive. Like they're, ex <laughs> I feel like they're exploiting the people who are in these scenarios uh, yeah, for yeah. our entertainment because we've just become awful with what we consider entertainment these days. And seeing people in these, you know, rough living situations and watching TV for hours on end of it for content now. And Discovery kind of has done this too in a way, except they they kind of focus on, I don't know, like fish tank making and um, people living in the wilderness uh, and being totally shocked and offended that when they've been living on government land their whole life illegally, and then the government finds out, asks them to leave, they're just beyond themselves that this thing, that this would happen. So they just kind of find these niches and they just stay in there. And they've, they've kind of lost that whole, you know, learning part of the learning channel or the arts part of the arts entertainment channel. And, um, and the discovery part has also been kind of lost. Like really the discovering of what we're capable of as a species or finding out new things, it's all sort of gone. But instead of just giving you about an hour to an hour and a half of us, complaining about the time when TV used to be good. Uh, we will focus on some of that good and how 
it gave us something to look forward to each week when it came on. And while there was a plethora of things on the Discovery uh, Network that did this, things like BattleBots, which were incredibly fun to watch, oh, um, yes. or J Junkyard Wars was awesome. Did you ever watch Junkyard Wars? Yeah, dude, I watched yeah. the hell out of that. Yeah, two teams in a junkyard and said, you got to build this, and they just, like, you know, Tony Stark it in a cave, and just, yeah. like, take scraps and make stuff out of it. <laughs> it was awesome. It was really cool, really good stuff. And one thing that made all of this kind of feel more accessible and more fun to the modern audience was a show called Mythbusters. And mm. this was an absolutely massive juggernaut that ran from 2003 all the way to 2016. 17 seasons, 296 episodes, and taught us way more things that are capable of duct tape than we imagined. <laughs> it, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. I mean, yeah. it, back at this point in time too, like back in 2003, just to, to help people visualize what I was up to at that point, uh, I was actually slinging pizzas back then and would find unique ways to smuggle out chicken wings from my employer <laughs> and there were times when I'd be sitting there on my couch just covered in ranch and buffalo sauce, and I'd turn on Discovery Channel. And what would be mm -hmm. there but a man with a beret and a walrus mustache and a, a very nerdy man who had a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> yes, and, and really uh, enjoyed the fedora himself. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. he took the fedora. Of course, we're referring to Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage, who were the hosts mm -hmm. of this show. And... To your point about BattleBots, these guys actually had some experience on BattleBots. They yeah. actually were contestants on that, mm -hmm. and and so uh, I didn't I didn't want to say that I completely recognized everything about these guys when I first saw MythBusters, mm -hmm. but I did recognize Heineman because, like I mentioned, this guy is pretty distinct. You're, yes, <laughs> you're, you're not going to confuse him for someone else. No. And yeah, yeah, and he actually I remember Heineman for BattleBots specifically because he made. A battle bot so dangerous they wouldn't let him compete with it <laughs> that sounds about right for him <laughs> definitely on brand yeah mm -hmm. oh, so yeah it was really cool to see these guys kind of take up that mantle because this was like we mentioned this is 2003 mm -hmm. when they first start doing this and this is long before the nerd tidal wave that we've talked about on our blog we've talked mm -hmm. about it in a previous episode back in season one with the uh, the nerdtastic voyage and this is it was such a a springboard for a lot of us back then you know like we were all kind of looking for something to bury mm -hmm. that nerddom or like like what what could help me capture more of my nerddom and this was it for me this was the show that kind of helped me become mm -hmm. more inquisitive to your point about discovery channel and what it used to do but i mean what 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 kind of effect did it have for you well one it was it was refreshing because it was just a great concept and a great idea and it was that alone just captured you each time because it, it was brilliant it literally would say the premise of the show is what's something that we may have always heard of like as something like our parents always told us growing up or we was told this was always a thing that happened about this way or something you saw in a movie or something you saw on the internet and like is that true or is that bullshit? Let's figure it out and let's try it ourselves. And just having that like kind of like can-do attitude of like, yeah, let's actually try it. Let's see what let's see see what happens. And and that's what hooked me into it is because like it never was boring to me. It never got old to me because there was just always 
so many things out there for them to test and then and then for them to do. So for me, as someone who always liked questioning what I saw or trying to like make something happen that probably could or couldn't happen, and just seeing like what what you know what would actually happen if I tried it, it was just fun seeing other people do that with actual resources um, because. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's something, of course, like we didn't have a lot of growing up, but they certainly did, as one of them owned a special effects studio and had quite a bit of things at their disposal. And then on top of that, they also get a, uh, you know, a budget from the Discovery Channel. So that's the effect that it had on me was just that kind of that it was a good mix of like scientific like process with yeah. like can-do attitude <laughs> so yeah it's just, yeah. just it was fun to see something like that represented and seen on tv yeah joe to your point this show definitely had this burgeoning positivity to it. it it even though they had some really strange things that would come through in like the fan mail and some of these urban legends were like how do you recreate these things yeah. it never really felt like they were going we don't know how to do this and it scares us mm -hmm. it, it was always about we're going to build this We'll figure it out and the details don't matter. We're going to yeah. get there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously what made part of that possible are just the hosts themselves and that they had a good amount of experience and background to actually one pull these things off. Because like you said, like sometimes you might think like, okay, so we heard about it, but how would you actually do it? How would you pull it off? But uh, these guys and gal had enough know-how of stuff that they had done to where it would be, I don't want to say easy for them, but like as far as drafting and thinking of how to do it, it was almost like second nature to them. Like, yeah, I have no idea if this is going to work, but this is how I think we could try it. And they would just go for it. And so like we said before, that Adam and Jamie had experience being on BattleBots together. But other than that, um, again, they had a, a good amount of like Hollywood experience to them where Adam Savage had worked on some of our favorites, like The Mummy and Galaxy Quest. Uh, he also got to work on, I think, ship design for Attack of the Clones and also did some work on The Matrix Reloaded. And uh, Jamie Heinrich himself, like I said, he's the owner of M5 Industries. So he just owned a special effects company uh, that they got to use that as the actual backdrop from the show. Also a ship captain and a dive master. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny how that his resume, it, it takes these twists and turns. Like we, we've mm -hmm. talked about how Heinemann, once again, incredible mustache, yes. but the fact that he is a dive master and a boat captain mm -hmm. and then a special effects wizard, it's, it's hilarious how these guys seem to intersect throughout their <laughs> careers. Because mm -hmm. if you just read Heinemann's resume, you'd go, there's no way those guys would ever meet randomly. No. <laughs> but but they did they you mentioned mm -hmm. BattleBots. obviously they did the uh, uh some of the star wars prequel movies together mm -hmm. and and the matrix of course too and so yeah it was really cool to see where they came from and then years later i would discover this that like holy shit they work on some of my favorite movies like this is mm -hmm. this is funny to put a face to a name because this yeah. is this is one of those things about movies mm -hmm. that i frankly do not ever really get into is actually mm -hmm. looking at the people that are building sets and building props and animatronics and doing that kind of stuff. I mean, we talked about composers, we've talked about uh, screenwriters and all that kind of stuff, but we never mm -hmm. talk about these folks. And so, yeah, yeah this was a mm -hmm. unique opportunity, it, not just in an idea for a show, but to see these Ooh. folks. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing them get to like basically thrive in their environment. 
And so well, we take like these two themselves, um, because while while they're on the Discovery Network, and this is at a time when they really, really pride themselves on like science based content. And these two themselves, when we just gave you like a good check of the resume, science isn't really there, like in the forefront, like you wouldn't like, like you wouldn't have to necessarily be an engineer to do what they do. Um, while you probably could, and it's probably the, the people in the movie industry would be very thankful if you had an engineering degree designing things for them. Uh, they would probably really enjoy that. But it's two people like observing scientific, like the scientific method and like approaching things with basically almost like a mind like a scientist to try and see if they would work or not was really cool. And when the show would get big enough after a few seasons, they found out that there were just way too many things to test on their own, and they had to get some help and call in three more hosts. Yeah, which mm -hmm. uh, actually, uh, this is where Adam Savage called in some of the folks that he had worked with previously as well. And that's where Tori Belechi, uh, Carrie Byron, and Grant Imahara ended up coming into the mm -hmm. show. They're all former coworkers and obviously people that work really well together. It's not just something that you mm -hmm. see in the results. You see it on, on screen. There's, you know, chemistry, charisma, all that good stuff. And so it was really nice to take it from two people that frankly weren't bad. Like, like Adam and Jamie were great hosts because mm -hmm. Adam is like the, uh, the flair, I guess, from a nerd standpoint. <laughs> and, and Jamie is like barely human. So it, it balanced well. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then when they bring in Tori, you know, Carrie and, and Grant, it was like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Now you've got even more palatable people on this show. Mm -hmm. And I, I always enjoyed watching that, how they split that up because those three actually work separately for the most part from like M5 and where uh, Adam and Jamie were. So they didn't always have intersecting priorities mm -hmm. like they would help work on some of the same projects but it didn't mean they were right next to each other no no and that's that's what's kind of fun because it's almost like you got like you know you got it's usually like what typically two to three myths an episode depending on like the the length of the myth uh sometimes even more because you'd have um you'd have jamie and uh why am i forgetting his name it's adam oh and adam so they're trying to yeah. up yeah <laughs> So but anyway, it'd be like having like almost an episode like split where you get to focus on one really big myth with Jamie and Adam, and that would take like half of your episode. And other times you could have two, one, two, or sometimes even three smaller myths being taken care of by Tori, Grant, and Carrie. So it was just really fun having that uh, as a dynamic on the show and was a way to, again, get as much content in as you could to each episode. Yeah, the the, the way they actually did the storytelling throughout an episode, as you mentioned with the multiple different myths that they would test, mm -hmm. it almost felt almost like Guy Ritchie in presentation because, mm -hmm. or actually slash Christopher Nolan will, will, will go kind mm -hmm. of broad here because they'll present part of a myth, then they'll bounce back to a different one. And so you kind of get to, you don't get a, like a full uninterrupted 15 minutes, just dedicated mm -hmm. to one thing. Yeah. Like you actually have to balance multiple different myths at one time. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was actually kind of cool to, to break that up because I'm not going to say science is boring. Like I enjoy science, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but, but think about it, Joe, like if you watched just one myth for 30 minutes, would you, would you, would oh, you make it through the entire thing? No, it'd be, it's, it's not enough. You've got to, you've got to pizzazz it up a little bit here with more myths. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the second 10 minute block, the heat is on to you. You know, you get to play shadow games. <laughs> yeah. So, mm -hmm. 
but I do like that you are like we are doing like legit like um like saying like spent like watching one science experiment one myth for thirty minutes because um one thing that this show has brought to uh into my life other than just like the myths themselves because as a teacher I've used several like um several MythBusters experiments where we would just test them at school for a few days where it's like, you know what? Content's getting a little dry. Let's spice it up with some experimentation. And we watch yeah. how like they would do something and they'd start with like the actual myth, the concept they look at the physics behind it. They try it on a smaller scale before they build it up and they execute it. They try it X amount of times and they see if it's doable or plausible. And it's just good scientific process and method. So even when you have two people who do not have like, science backgrounds like they're not again they're not engineers they're not physicists they're just two guys who like experimenting um with <laughs> with movie sets and props so it was a good way to work that in with my classroom so i always appreciated that and then of course there would always be like the one killer moment at the end of the experiment where i use a quote from adam savage to this day and that oh, is yeah. that um science without paperwork is just screwing around so you have to basically write a paper about this and what we tested and what it proved. Um, and that was, you know, just part of the love of it all is that you got two relatable guys and you know, eventually three more relatable people as well. Uh, and they just made the process fun for you. And part of that was how they laid out the episodes. And I think they, they basically always do it where they would get to a point in them building something, making something, and it'd be like a crucial part or a large part where they'd indicate a lot of work would have to happen. But instead of just skipping over all of that, they would cut to the second myth and then be working on the second myth, show something, do a quick update on where they were in the other ones. And it was a fun way of making you feel like you were actually there with them working on everything. So it just yeah. kind of pulled you into it, uh, making you a part of it. And that was also just part of like the really big fun of the show. It did. That's a really good point that you mentioned because I was thinking the same thing. Like they would, they would give you time to make it seem like, okay, we're going to figure this out, but we have to think it through. And so mm -hmm. while we do that, we're going to send you over here. And so it, it almost felt like a real process that you got to start and finish with and kind of follow through some of the complications that would happen at times. Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to mention though, before we get too far away, when you mentioned that you were quoting Adam Savage, I thought you were mm -hmm. going to say the thing that he mentions in the the opening of the show for like the first three or four seasons where he says, I reject a reality and substitute my own. <laughs> to this day, one of my favorite one. quotes I've ever, I, I use it so much because it is so damn funny. And, and yeah, oh God, I, I love that. That's, but, but that's, that's the, that's a really good point, man. Like the beginning mm -hmm. of this show did feel like that. And, yeah, it, it actually felt like a an organic thing that reality TV screws up all the time. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you get these organic uh, TV shows so rarely, and it's like they insert things. And now I'm not saying they didn't do this in the show because all mm -hmm. reality is kind of a... Oh yeah, you know, a formula. But mm -hmm. but this wasn't really built like a lot of other reality shows because it, it came from an Australian-based writer named Peter Ease who... I have no idea who that is. Mm -mm, I got nothing. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, I'm sure none of us know that. Mm -hmm. And w when they actually got the concept for this show, it started off as one of those things like, are we going to present myths and then just ask people for their opinions of them? Or should we ask about myths and then try to disprove them? Right. Mm -hmm. And and so oddly enough, Jamie Heineman was at the top of 
like the the casting call. Like he was the first guy they were thinking of, and I go, zero charisma, weird looking dude, <laughs> has a hard time balancing relationships. Yeah, let's get him out there. Yeah. Right? Seems like great for he seems like great for in front of the camera t- style work. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, that's the only reason why we got Adam Savage was because Jamie Heineman said, I don't think people are going to find me interesting. <laughs> we need to get somebody else mm-hmm. involved. Which is also just <laughs> funny that he said that himself. <laughs> it it, like well, someone came to him and was like, hey, dude, you're like a wet mop over here. I don't think we can pull <laughs> this off with you. Let's bring in someone fun to jazz this up. He's like, no, no, I'm not good for in front of the camera. That's why I work behind it. Usually we need someone yeah. entertaining. And like, I like, like, again, like we talked about how like the, the dynamic between the two like main hosts of this and how they just balance and work with each other so well. And it's almost like, like you think of like almost like Kirk and Spock style, except if Kirk focused more on just joking with Spock as opposed to being a leader and <laughs> yeah. Spock was just there to deal with the joking. Um, it's, it's kind of that relationship uh, is the best way to put it. He is the, the Jordy and data and the Spock and Kirk sort of, sort of thing we've got going on of the, the almost non-human Jamie Heideman with the fun loving Adam Savage. Which always felt so weird to me because in the years after the show ended, they interviewed Heineman asking him about Savage and saying, you know, Hey, do you guys still keep up? And he says, no, I haven't talked to him since the show ended. And they go, Oh, well, that's kind of weird. You guys work together for like 16 years. Why not? And then he just truthfully said to them, yeah, I respect him a lot, mm-hmm. but we're not friends. Yeah. And I'm like, I, when I saw that, I was like, how the hell do you work with someone for like the better part of 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, on TV and off. And then there's no friendship there. Like wh- what's going on? <laughs> like, Jamie's just a bit of a robot. <laughs> he, he seriously, he, yeah. I, I swear to God, mm-hmm. if you ever like peeled back the skin on that dude, it's like all metal. And you know, it's like a, like a T 100 under there, man. I mean, he's he, one of the he closest just... things we have to Egon Spangler. I'm positive at one point in time in that show, there was a myth about drilling a hole through your own head. And Jamie was convinced it would have worked until Adam stopped him. So (laughs) seriously, Mm -hmm. like that's what is so funny about that. It, it doesn't seem like it should work because Mm -hmm. as, as nerds, I think, I think you and I can speak for each other quite well here. Not all nerds are meant to get along with each other. And the fact that you had two people that did for so long, Mm -hmm. but weren't friends, I still do not understand that at all. And also again, like, like you said, like they, they, they had something that a lot of reality TV just didn't and still doesn't. And part of that is the fact that they have like an, like, you know, almost a production quality, like on-screen chemistry with each other is they balance each other. So there's their, yeah, their, their personalities and their attitudes balance each other so well. And they had enough respect for each other, obviously without actually being friends that they just worked in front of the camera. And it wasn't just a bunch of like door slamming drama uh, that would go on. And that yeah. was like the pull to the show. Like, oh, would you believe that these two opposites, this odd couple, like working together, the, can they actually get it done? That was never a part of it. That it was never their personalities in question that would make it so that they couldn't do their job or see if it would work. They were just like cut each other really quick on something and then go right back to working and be fine with it. And it was something they you know was just completely missing from anything else. Even like at this time on the same network, I think you had like orange County choppers 
It was just, okay, how much can this family yeah. tear each other apart this week while they build a motorcycle? And that was part of the bigger draw of the show was that people loved seeing this dad scream at his kid <laughs> for yeah, yeah. an hour. And then they, they managed to plot a, you know, a mediocre working, cool looking bike, um, which, you know, I could say that cause it's, they, they all kind of look the same after a point, but anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, no, you, you're, 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 no, that's a good vein though, because at this point in time, you're, you're totally right. Like reality TV was going through some changes we had gotten through, you know, some of the early Fox stuff, like the the magician secrets, and if you want to consider uh, factor fiction beyond belief, like <laughs> in, in there, I kind of do. I mm-hmm. think it's there. But then, yeah, you get into the early two thousands, and then you start getting these shows, like you mentioned, and we've talked about Little People, Big World. You mm-hmm. start having like MTV and VH1; they're doing some stuff, and this is unique, even for reality TV, let alone an educational show. Because you and I both probably grew up on stuff like Beekman's World and mm-hmm. uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy, right? Like they're they're critically different types of TV, and so this managed to build my interest in science, keeping it positive. I mean, they got frustrated. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did. But but it wasn't because uh, failure was something they focused on. Mm-mm. It was more about that that famous Edison line of I didn't you know, fail at, at, at inventing the light bulb or whatever. I just learned how to not make it thousands of times. Right. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's mm-hmm. more what Jamie and, and, and Adam kind of took in with them as they did this stuff. But yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And one thing that they were really good with on the show was actually pointing out safety measures that they took on it. <laughs> so like, obviously like right away they would have basically the start of the show and in, like when you'd return from a commercial break, you'd get a disclaimer of basically the standard, like don't try this at home or professionals. And then they'd like make fun of you if you actually wanted to try it at home. Give us a break. Don't try what you're about to see at home. Basically call you an idiot for doing some of the ridiculous things that they tried when they had an entire studio behind them to make it possible. Um, so that was part of it. And then they also won just when they were doing the experience because the nature of a lot of their experiments were actually pretty dangerous. So like yeah. you talk about like them, uh, I had mentioned that like, uh, they showed us like more, more ways to do things with duct tape than you ever thought imaginable. And like, they made an entire bridge made out of duct tape, but as they crossed it, they had a crane with, you know, safety gear har- harnesses. So that if the bridge failed or they fell through, they would be safe or the number of different, excuse me, myths that they did with firearms. And they would be absolutely yeah. sure that they would have protective, like one eyewear, um, earwear, um, and just, you know, safety barriers around the gun going off and everything else that was needed. Because I mean, there's one myth where they tested like what would happen if two bullets actually hit each other. So of course, yeah. you know, if you try this at home, it'd be two idiots, like actually pointing guns at each other, like, all right, Let's see if this here myth would work. And then they would shoot and then you have two <laughs> dead morons. So of course them actually like rigging this with machines, robotics, and still having safety stuff around them was like, yep, yeah, this is a way to actually see if these sort of things would work, if that would happen. And of course, like it wasn't just firearm stuff. It'd be anything that involved explosives. Cause again, they were blowing shit up like every other week. So that was also part of it, like making sure that people are a safe distance away. They had barriers between the explosion and them. Uh, they have like fire um, resistant, like wear on all the stuff that they did to make sure that the audience would know, Hey, 
do not try this at home. <laughs> do you want to make a very important distinction, though? Mm -hmm. The United States always got the disclaimers. Other countries didn't necessarily need it. And I think that was deliberate. <laughs> I think that you put needed. So it wasn't like there was an error of like, oh, we just forgot to put that clip in uh, when we showed this throughout Europe. It's like, no, no, no. The Europeans just know better. <laughs> They're not going to try this. The Americans will be curious. <laughs> they will try these things at home. It's like that joke with the, the invention of the bulletproof vest. Oh, and it's God. like, yep. all right, Tom, I'm ready. Shoot me. And then he shoots the guy in the leg and he goes, no. The vest, Tom. <laughs> Shoot the vest. <laughs> like, like that, that definitely like, feels like what they're doing. Specific, yeah. So you really <laughs> you can't blame Tom. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, or this is right there with like the bulletproof cup from Super Troopers. <laughs> oh my! Yes. Yes. Yep. Exactly. You know, there's someone somewhere in some state that tried it. Like, yep, we oh, made of it. Course. We have, we have, we have, they're like, oh, no, it was fine. We put body armor on everywhere else too, but we also had the cup and we tested it. <laughs> it's like, you shouldn't have, you really shouldn't have. <laughs> but that was a good point. Mm -hmm. They they, re they were so dedicated to the safety of stuff. And it, it wasn't mm -hmm. just in the, the, the set dressing either. It was actually to the point where they would blur out a bunch of stuff. They would blur out mm -hmm. uh, anything that had to do with explosives. They typically yep. wouldn't give you a whole lot of data on that. They would, mm -hmm. they would uh, use code words for some of that stuff to yep. keep it as safe as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and they, one thing was really funny too, is when they were testing the myth about peeing on the electric rail for, for the, you know, for like a rail system, train mm -hmm. rail, they even blurred out the, uh, the, the peeing apparatus they created for the dummy. <laughs> <laughs> So, yep. so, so even though they it's like safety, <laughs> they were having fun with it. Yeah. Yep. The producers mm -hmm. are doing like really funny shit with this. And you're looking at that. And I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, why did they blur that out? Like, it's, <laughs> it's not an actual penis, but they've blurred it out like it is. Not a real penis. <laughs> yeah. Not real pee, but we're going to blur uh, it out. Anyway. Actually, I think the pee was real. It might have been. It probably was I'm real. To, they I, probably used that. Um, yeah. Simulated which, urine. Simulated urine. Yes. Which, of course, that came out of uh, the trusty sidekick and i think we could call we call him the sixth host that never spoke a word and his name was buster and he was yes. the the test dummy that endured many of many a thing and i don't know how many busters they actually went through but like i think they kept the same buster at least through the first like two or three seasons before he was just he just couldn't come back there wasn't enough left of him to do anything so i'm, I'm sure they went through uh, several busters throughout 296 episodes but yeah, it was just always fun. You know, they gave a name to the the crash test dummy and was in so many different experiments. It was funny to mm -hmm. watch Buster's progression because like they rebuilt him, they had the technology, but like every mm -hmm. time they did something to him, whether it was catching on fire or explosions or bullets, like they would rec like recreate him as best they could. Mm -hmm. But like, he's clearly still been on fire at one point. Yep. And there's like a, there's like part of his arm is like, missing and it's like <laughs> <laughs> like if you if if you would watch it in syndication and like mm -hmm. you're just you know checking it out randomly one day like there would be an episode in the in the earlier time when you'd see like the full-on buster crashed on me body and then the next episode because it's in syndication you'd see him and he's like completely screwed up and like <laughs> like parts of his head are missing yep. so yeah buster was the mvp for sure man i i oh, feel bad was. for him 
Like either he yeah. took like a champ or secretly like they'd come into the shop one day and they'd turn the lights on and Buster's be sitting in a chair at the time. They just said, kill me. Like, just let yeah. me die. <laughs> like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. <laughs> uh, I, there's something about dropping a crash test dummy from like a lot, like a, a very high up place and just watching it <laughs> lifelessly fall. You yeah. know, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> they, yep. they, they did that to him so many times. It was fantastic. Oh, and I think they I, I'm pretty sure on their last ever episode, they literally just strapped him to a rocket and sent him off into the sunset. Like they was like they, they were testing it. Like I don't know if it was an actual myth, but it was like a rocket chair, and they just put him on it, and <laughs> sent it, and he just just gone. It's like oh, not even. It's like there is some pomp and circumstance over like the fact that this was Buster's last myth, but not a whole lot. There's no sympathy yeah. for what they're putting him through. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. not. There is no remorse whatsoever. But. But it was the spirit of the show, though, wasn't so much to like laugh in the face of science. Like the mm -hmm. the format was to take like a a largely held public belief or mm -hmm. you know some kind of uh, behind closed doors uh, myth or something, and the application of trying to solve it, which didn't always necessarily mean that they found the most direct route, because mm -hmm. sometimes you'd be trying to solve a myth and then you found out you can't replicate this in the ways that we were trying to do it. Yeah. So then they would basically bolt on to their engineering to mm -hmm. try to get it to a point where they could get it to work. Yes. And that's where mm -hmm. I think a lot of the fun was. I don't know if you think the same thing. Oh, completely. And again, sometimes uh, there's the myth itself is fun. Like the idea of actually trying, it's really good. And I think not like, I, don't, I like how you point out a lot of them are just like actual, like, you know, like tall tales, like not tall tales, but like urban legends or myths or things we'd always heard of or stuff from the internet. But I think some of the best ones and where they really shine because that was, you know, that's their, the biggest part of their professional experience is when they would take things that happened in movies because, you know, they're the people who are responsible for setting them up in the movie in the first place. And they would see like, okay, well, how plausible is this in real life? So even something as like, you know, something that happens in lots of action movies, the hero jumps out of the window and falls all the way to the ground, but they land in a dumpster and then pop out of the dumpster and then they're back to running on their feet. It's, you know, yeah. as close as we have to like, you know, aim for the bushes that would actually work. <laughs> and like, it was more like, you know, it's plausible if the dumpster is completely filled with the softest material possible and exactly. it's outside of like a mattress factory, because you have to imagine if there were like glass bottles or like, you know, like things of like lumber or wood or metal and things are just stepping there. It's like, no, it's like, you're probably going to, you're probably going to die. <laughs> like it's not going to really help jumping into a dumpster. Uh, and on top of that, like, you know, actually aim like actually hitting the dumpster not like hitting the middle of the dumpster and not hitting your head against the side of it or something like that or you know missing it so it was when they tested like these movie myths that he felt like they were like especially excited because like they were like okay how can we just make it look right on the screen and now they're like okay now let's see if doing it the way we did in the screen would actually work in real life and if it doesn't what would we have to do to make it work in real life that was fun to see which got elaborate over time, like in the beginning, yes. I remember it was mm -hmm. like they would insert sensors or something to kind of show like, mm -hmm. okay, this is the amount of force that came out of, you know, Buster falling from this height or, or Buster being in the car when it got hit by a snowplow or something. <laughs> and, and then they, they even kind of up the stakes over time too, to include like real blood or fake blood packets in yep. Buster so that if he got stabbed or 
if the concussive forces were, were big enough, it would trigger like real effects. Mm-hmm. And, and that really helped not just make it a cool visual thing to watch, but like really made you think about just what that crash dummy was going through. I mean, it was, <laughs> and, and this is also a, a point in time, Joe, where the slow, the slow speed, the slow-mo camera, it wasn't really widely used quite yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you saw it in plenty of action movies and stuff, but, but they would show it to the effect of like, we're seeing just how fast a bullet is moving and and what happens to the surface that it hits when it does that kind of thing. And after this point in time, I really do feel like so many shows copy that. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they ripped it off. And, but this was like, I feel like Mythbusters really made that sexy and fun to put into a TV show. Oh, completely. I mean, for you too, it wasn't always, like sometimes it was, like you said, like the, the really cool things to see of like, you're seeing a bullet go through ballistic gel or go through water or go through something or a weapon, like slicing off like a, like a ballistic gel body part. And you're watching it actually sear and cut through and that stuff's all well and good. But other times it was just fun to actually know sometimes watch a machine they built work in slow motion. So you can see all of the intricate moving parts that are doing their individual jobs. And that was really fun to watch. And, you know, that was like, again, like taking something like how it's made and making it even more fun to watch because you're doing yeah. it through the lens of an experiment. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, I, I think it was always fun to watch them attach a blade to something and then watch <laughs> that blade hit something in high speed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, that was always a treat, man. Cause there's mm-hmm. stuff flying everywhere. There's oh vibrations. God, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is, it was so cool to see what things do at high speed like that. And, oh yeah. Yeah. And but it, yeah. It's like, and you'd also usually get Adam who would be very enthusiastic about the myth and actually dress for, for the occasion and change what he was wearing. So he would fit in for what they're doing. And every once in a while, Jamie would do it too. Um, but very, yeah. very rarely would Jamie Heideman actually change what he was wearing and never no. would the beret be off unless he was going underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that was the mm-hmm. only time he would change is if, if they had to be in the water, Jamie yes. was always in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think I can, I can think of one time specifically where Jamie actually like changed his clothing. And that was um, when they were doing the Star Wars myths and they were testing the myth of the high ground with a lightsaber. And would it actually <laughs> give you an advantage? And both of them dressed like Jedi's instead of just Adam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> It had to have been later because I don't think I was still watching when that one yeah. happened. That had mm-hmm. to have been like the latter half, but yes. To, and to... <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, and and that is part of like the sad part of the show is just like society and the fact that we get bored like eventually, and like we need to we need to see something different. We either need to scale up what we're seeing, or it just tends to go away because this is something again. Like when you get to almost three hundred episodes of you testing myths, um, and like even though it had a working format, eventually that format will not capture the audience the way it used to. So you ended up seeing the show actually eventually revert back to just being with Jamie and Adam and, you know, our, our, the three hosts just were out of job, which was sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all good things have to come to an end, even though it didn't stay gone very long because they just ended up moving the show to the science channel and putting two no two new hosts on there. And eventually I think Adam got Mythbusters Jr. where he was on there doing stuff again, except he was doing it with yeah. kids. But Jamie yeah. had had long left the equation in either either scenario. They did have this uh contest, I think, to 
figure out who was going to host the show next and mm-hmm. like whatever. That's, that's really, yeah. I, I had mm-hmm. long been removed at that point, but yeah. the, the things that I fondly remember are, are some of these experiments that happened fairly early in the series. The one that I love the most mm-hmm. because I debated this with people for many years was the effects of rain and whether or not walking or running yeah. makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would debate this with people all the time. And and this is separate from the fact that there's probably more safety risks if you're running versus walking. Mm-hmm. Personally, I walk in the rain. I do not run in the rain. Okay? I just don't. I don't know where you fall on this side of the debate, Joe. <laughs> I mean, I, I run in the rain because I just want to get out of it faster. I'm not concerned over getting more wet. I just want to be done with it. So I run. I get out of it. <sighs> so if, if, if the answer was would, and, and that's part of what they're testing, is do you actually get more wet if you walk in the rain or run in the rain? Which one would actually keep you drier? And I just don't want to be there. I'm apparently like a cat and just want to be out of it. So I run every time. Yeah, And the thing is, they 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 set up this uh, simulated rain environment in the studio, mm-hmm. and they had clothes that would capture the rain on the clothing, right? And then they would weigh the clothing and then say, okay, running versus walking, which clothes mm-hmm. weighed more, right? They actually found out that walking in the rain, you actually don't get any more wet than you do if you ran. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I watched that, I was like Leo DiCaprio pointing at the TV, like going, oh. validation. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's real yep. it's real to me it god damn it and, and it was it was real mm-hmm. so so just just take their advice on that like walk in the rain don't yeah. run you're mm-hmm. not you're not saving your clothes man it's not gonna help you joe <laughs> no no it's not and in a less practical one that i i personally enjoyed quite a bit uh they one they actually did twice they did a um a car snowplow flip myth where oh, if a car yes. was driving and it clipped a snowplow, it would actually flip in the air. And the first time they did it, it had some pretty mixed results. And it was it was actually, it's one of those ones where it was kind of fun to see how frustrated they got over like trying to get it to work um, until they got something that kind of worked and it didn't quite work the way they wanted to. But like, you know what? We tried here. Just damn it. This is the best we got with it. And then they came back to it and like, hold on. Some people say that you could straight up have a car get split in half by a snowplow. So let's see if we can test that. And that was fun to watch because, again, they, they took it to an extreme over. They got, like, instead of having, like, the how plows actually are, just, like, the one flat slab, and they just they angle it so it goes where you want to. This was, no, 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 no. It's going to be two that meet in the middle, and it's going to plow it off in either way. And, you know, th- those plows just don't really they're not there <laughs> because they're not because bad. Of they're not battering the, rams. No, yeah. the inherent obvious safety issues of having a plow work like that. And on top of that, you're pushing it into another lane of traffic. You see, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want the snow to do that. It doesn't work. It's unsafe. It's all bad. But to test the myth, obviously with traditional plow, there's no way a car is getting cut in half. So they had to actually manufacture a plow to do that. And yeah. that was done here in Wisconsin. And it was done at a place where one of my friends, uh, his name was Jake at UW-Whitewater, he worked at the place that built the plow and where they tested it. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's actually Mm -hmm. actually really a a point we didn't even bring up was that while they did a ton of experiments based in the San Francisco Bay Area where M5 was based out of, 
they would travel the country and the world to mm-hmm. try to get the right environments and do the right things to mimic this stuff, which is funny that a snowplow experiment would happen in Wisconsin, but that's no. fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if all the things they could test with the state of Wisconsin, I'm happy I had to do with snow and not something like, <laughs> What if we built a cannon entirely comprised of cheese and we shot cheese out of it because Wisconsin loves cheese? It's like, well, true. That is entirely a waste of the said cheese. And we wish that you would not shoot it out of a cannon because then we can't eat it anymore. But, you know, they they stuck with something that was realistic and went with the snowplow. So we do appreciate that. (laughs) Speaking of realistic, one of my favorite myths was, can you build a ball of Legos big enough that you could roll down a hill and actually cause like property damage with (laughs) (laughs) classic. And 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 they actually built a three thousand pound ball of Legos that they Mm -hmm. meticulously constructed and just just attached together. And by the time they got this ball, it's, it's, it's just this grotesque looking thing. It's like, I I think it was like seven or eight feet tall. Yeah. (laughs) It was, it was huge. (laughs) The best part was when they they finally do push this thing down the hill, it just completely breaks apart. Yep. It just just, well shatters. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Just like, huh, all that work is, it's gone. Yeah, it's like Geralt Rivia. It's just like, mm, fuck. And now we move on. <laughs> but oh. I can't imagine how much time it took to put that thing together, oh and then God. just to watch it fall apart, Fair. like mm-hmm. just, just old underwear down that hill. It just completely just shredded and fell apart. Part of me like, man. At the yeah. same time, though, like even with that, like you have to imagine, like best job on the planet, though. So, like, you got pay, like, sure, like, it didn't work. It failed absolutely as miserably as it possibly could have, and that the ball didn't make it really anywhere, like, far enough to actually cause damage or thing because it just broke itself apart. They got paid to put a giant ball of Legos <laughs> together and push it down a hill. How fucking amazing is that? Like, that's just, that's, like, best job ever territory. So, which, I mean, just it goes with a bunch of other things because they would do practical things that were kind of fun, uh, where like one of my favorite ones was they would just test like a different, like a different amount of like fuel economy myths. And they would see like, Hey, if you actually like, f- like follow close enough in lane to basically like you're drafting, like you're racing, would that save gas? Does it make it easier to drive? The answer is yes. However, you are so close. It is not safe. So you shouldn't do it. Um, we also, and then looking at like, okay, because they looked at how like UPS, uh, the postal service, and like FedEx, how they're actually like plan their routes so the drivers only take right hand turns. So even though they'd be driving a little bit further because they don't stop as frequently, they actually save on gas. So they would test that and see if that would work. Uh, or uh, they would see like, okay, so just stopping at more traffic lights frequently, does that cause you to lose more fuel economy? And in the process, yeah. we learned two things. One, yes, those things will affect fuel economy. And you should be mindful of them as you do it. And two, Carrie Byron does have some pretty solid road rage. So <laughs> do not make her upset behind the wheel. She's not going to do anything about it. She's not going to like fly into you. But she may make the ride uncomfortable for everyone else in the car with her. Dude, the, the, the amount of like uh, car-based experiments they did mm-hmm. were 
actually some things that we fought over amongst my friends group uh, before we even watched the show because they did prove that rolling the windows down instead of using the AC obviously improves fuel economy. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was a debate we used to have a lot because my friend refused to put the AC on, but then there was that idea of changing lanes because every one of us knows someone who weaves through traffic and just want to murder them. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that weaving through traffic did generally get people to their destination about 3% faster than the folks that didn't. But it's like, is that really worth it to get there like a minute early? No, I mean, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no. It just pissed me off because every mm-hmm. time I thought about that, I'm like, I'm that guy that will get into the middle lane and go a little bit slower and not care mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But they they proved me wrong. That I mean, I get there safer though. That's mm-hmm. the point. I get yeah, there safer, less accidents. One thing they never tested is that when you have someone who does fly past you much faster than supposed to be going or is weaving through traffic, they've never actually tested what happens when you still pull up beside them when you exit or you hit a stoplight. And it turns out you got to the same place at the same, not, not the same time, but you're now both stopped for the same amount of time. The satisfaction that goes through your veins like, ha, you're a dumbass. You did all that work and we got to the same place. And here we are, both of us waiting for the same period of time. Yeah. So yeah, it just yeah. What, the, what's the, the level of flowers. satisfaction myth mm-hmm. or something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess I guess to the point of what we've done with a lot of properties, Joe. This is a unique one in the fact that there is so much stuff out there. Yeah. That they've done so much, mm-hmm. and we always talk about lasting legacies of things because. For the most part, we're watching movies that have been out for sometimes 15, 20, 30 years. In the case of Mythbusters, this is a property that is, you know, 19 years old already. Mm-hmm. And I still can't believe that. <laughs> I almost want to refuse to believe it. <laughs> but but yeah, where, where do you what do you think the lasting legacy of Mythbusters is? One from like a personal standpoint, it is what replaces Bill Nye, the science guy. And uh, this is again, like probably not like a big time legacy, but how it works for me is that like, I can't show students like Bill Nye, the science guy stuff anymore because so much of like what's on there is like, you know, we've actually found that this isn't accurate anymore. We found new things or new discoveries since it happened. Like even something as simple as like watching the space episode and like, okay, well, Pluto's not a planet anymore. All those theories over how the moon got there, we accept none of them anymore. We have new ideas over how it likely happened. And we have all of these things that have caught up where it's like, okay, a lot of this is inaccurate now. And a lot of it also, like the content, the look of it is so very much like you could tell this was made in 93. Everyone's trying to rap. <laughs> Every section of it of a different thing is a di- of your clothing is a different color. Some of it's on backwards, not just the hat, the shirt, the pants. We wore a lot of things backwards in the 90s. We just took that backwards hat thing to the next level. But this is something where the content doesn't necessarily date itself. Like, sure, like maybe like in the long run, we can see the clothes they're wearing. Like, okay, we wouldn't wear that anymore. But like none of it looks embarrassing. Like even looking back like the really early stuff. Like the format is like, nope, here's the format. Here's how it works. We're not trying to make it like appealing by doing something um, like, I would say like catchy or trendy. It's a wig. We're just doing the damn thing and seeing if it works. And because of that, 
I can show this content to my students and like we can like analyze and break down what they did well in terms of an experiment and we can mimic that and try it ourselves. So it makes it so like the science part of what they do in each episode is accessible to the standpoint to anyone, even though they tell you not to try all the things that they do um, while you're at home. But in our, my defense, they're at school, not at home. So we can try it there as long as we, we follow certain safety procedures. And I think that accessibility is a big part of the show's legacy uh, in that like we can see two people who, I mean, even though they work in the Hollywood industry, you could kind of consider like they're, they're basically blue collar people doing these, these big things that we wouldn't think would be accessible to, you know, the common viewer, the common person. And I think that has a lot to do or high has not to do, but I think that is, that's its biggest lasting legacy is making um, these things and like the science behind them accessible to everyone. Which I, I, I completely agree with. And I know I alluded to this point a few minutes ago, but I do credit Mythbusters for a very good part of this, like continuing nerd tide that kind of came out of nowhere because for many years, you know, guys like you and I were, hiding this stuff from people if we had interest in this kind of stuff you know you'd if you want to start talking about space with people they'd just be like nerd and <laughs> nowadays they still do to Fair an extent enough. but for me when I, when I look at the lasting legacy it's the fact that you could have people like jamie heineman and adam savage who are completely different people very strange in some mm -hmm. regards eccentric of course mm -hmm. but it, it's it's the idea that these guys could come together and do really cool things that other people may not have ever given the time of day because of like what you mentioned the accessibility of what being nerdy and and being a geek whatever kind of meant mm -hmm. and, and what that brought with it and to see these guys be so successful in what they've done in their careers they're having fun with what they're doing yes it's challenging it doesn't always end up the way they want, but they find a way through it. And for me, that's what I applied to myself. I went, wow, I can overcome anything so long as I have that right frame of mind. And I took that lesson from these guys. I really did. And I, I mean, I, I just kind of want to thank them for that. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of reality TV shows mm -hmm. that can do that. No. And Mm -hmm. And we just fortunately had this one for the better part of a decade and a half. And one thing that is both sad, but also kind of not sad to mention is that in one of the many things that did happen in the long run of this show is that Epic Rap Battles of History did see what would happen if we took the Mythbusters and put them against the Ghostbusters and see who was in fact better at busting. And as big as a fan of the Ghostbusters as we are in the show, I think the Mythbusters did in fact win that Epic Rap Battle. Their stuff was just better. Um, they did the uh i think trying to think of like lines that really really stuck out was um you built a laser grid with no safety switch and walter peck was right that's some shady shit um <laughs> just <laughs> it just worked great and when you think about it, it's like yeah yeah how come when he he put it like when he turned the machine off he had no fail safe to keep it from blowing up that does seem like that was that was a slight oversight on egon's part but <laughs> yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing is ghosts aren't real. So yeah. it should be said that that was my takeaway from mm -hmm. that. I, I'm, <laughs> I don't personally believe in it, but yeah, I, I yeah. do actually agree with the result of that epic rap battle. And mm -hmm. I don't always, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they were, 
to quote the ninth doctor, these guys were fantastic. Yes. They just were. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I, any of the legal stuff that happened post show and all that kind of shit, I don't really care about. Like, mm-hmm. none of it ever materialized. Like, as a show, these guys were fantastic. And it was just proof that you don't mm-hmm. have to be like the mainstream to be successful. You can do your own stuff like this so long as you've got the passion and the will behind it. And, uh, Nostalgic, and, Joe. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is definitely a fun, fun walk down memory lane, as this show often is since we review so many things in the past. And it is on that note that we would like to thank you for listening to Digital Dissection. And as always, we appreciate all that the Dissection crew does for us week after week. We know there are a lot of podcasts out there, so you choosing ours every week to listen to does mean a lot to us. And so does your support, because it does go a long way. And if you did happen upon this uh, show by accident, you can always leave us a review or comment on the episodes uh, so that we know that you're really enjoying the show and that the people who distribute us also know you're enjoying the show quite a bit. Uh, other things we like enjoy, uh, we like to enjoy as well is hearing from you. So feel free to leave us a message at digitaldissectionpodcast at gmail.com as we welcome your ideas for future shows and any and all comments over, you know, anything you just like to discuss, the things we've talked about, or you know what, shoot us a random thought. Who knows? Maybe we had it too. And until next time, keep on dissecting. <laughs>